0: The Lord be with you. The next few Sundays uh, are are going to be demonstrative and historic at Waterstone. Demonstrative is next week. It's day to serve, this annual Sunday, when we'll meet here at 9 o'clock, but be done by 10 and out into the community. Come in your work clothes, bring rake, hammers, whatever you're signed up to do. We worship for a bit, and then we go out. When Jesus entered the world... He launched a force in this world known as the kingdom of God. It's still coming in all of its fullness when every knee will bow. But right now we get glimpses of it, putting everything back together, glimpses like a church going out on a Sunday and weeding and landscaping and painting and fixing. Glimpses of the renewal of the kingdom of God. So we need every person at Waterstone. We want you to do this. It's not a day off. Please come and be here. If you haven't signed up, I'm encouraging you to sign up during my sermon. Pull out your phone. There it is. Sign up. You can serve as a family, serve in your small group, whatever group. There's sites on there. Sign up. We we need you to help Waterstone show up next Sunday. All right? Demonstrative. Historic. September 11th and the 18th, we're inviting you here for a series called Women in Ministry. The elders of Waterstone are recommending inclusive leadership, adding women to our elder board. We will present the biblical case on those Sundays. There will be town halls, there will be Q&As, there will be a white paper available next week that explains why we're doing this. We need you here for those Sundays, and all of this later in the fall will lead to a vote, the voice of the congregation, and you'll vote on this. So really important that you're here September 11th. Now, a couple of things to navigate this sermon this morning. First, in the middle of the sermon, we're actually going to have a time when we uh, reenact a bit of what we just heard Jenny read from Nehemiah 8. I'm gonna need four volunteers to read text from the slides uh, at this mic, and there's another mic right in the middle of the room, four here and four there. So you can be thinking, and when I say it's time for the readers, uh, just four of you, each mic, eight of you jump up. Don't be bashful. Fill up those slots and read uh, this great time when we declare the greatness of God. At the end of this service, we're all as a congregation going to send one of our missionary couples, Bruce and Laura Elliott, to their new mission field, Turkey. All of us are going to commission them through a time of prayer. So be thinking if you want to come stand with them up here, lay hands on them, the rest of you in your seats, and we're all going to pray them to Turkey. They leave this Wednesday. So a great way to end the service. In 1971 and 72, the most popular children's program on a Saturday morning was hosted by Walter Cronkite. It was called You Are There, and I can still hear his voice. This is an extraordinary moment in history, and you are there. I'd like to borrow Walter Cronkite's template for our worship service this This morning. This is an extraordinary moment of worship and you are there. It's the fall 1740 Boston. In the public square, a crowd of 23,000 people have shown up. The largest known crowd ever to have assembled in the new nation. They've come to hear a 25-year-old British evangelist by the name of George Whitfield. Whitfield already had one very good friend that you've probably heard of. His name was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin said that George Whitfield was so gifted with voice that he could be easily heard without strain by 30,000 people. Whitfield preached. Four different times down the coast of the United States, from Connecticut to Georgia. And George Marston, a scholar from Notre Dame, estimates that 80% of the American colonists heard Whitfield preach at least once. Our founding preacher. Whitfield writes in his journal in 1742, after preaching to a large crowd in London, I was honored to preach today. Honored that they threw stones at me. Dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats. Yet, I preached for three hours, and 350 people were awakened. This is an extraordinary moment of worship, and you are there. It's 1904. A young college student from Wales by the name of Evan Roberts is bored one Wednesday night, new at school. He decides to walk into a chapel for a prayer service. Walks in and in the middle of the preacher talking, the preacher is moved to pray. And he prays out loud, Lord, bend the hearts of these people, your flock, to the will of the Father. Evan Roberts is so moved by the prayers, he immediately hits his knees and prays, God, bend my heart to you. And as soon as he prays that prayer, he is burdened for the youth of his hometown back in Moriah in the land of Wales. So much so that he drops out of college, leaves that night, heads back, the next meeting calls a prayer meeting in Moriah Chapel and invites all the youth of the town to come. 20 people show up and he asks them to each stand and declare that they love Jesus Christ and they do. They decide to meet again the next night and 40 show up. They decide to meet the next night And the next night, and soon there are standing room only crowds and meetings of singing and confession and the reading of scripture that lasts to two and three in the morning. Soon it begins to overflow to the other chapels and towns around the country of Wales. And from 1904 to 1906, it is estimated that 100,000 people are converted. That's 10% of the population of Wales, as you can imagine. It had a huge impact on the society. Stories are told of the rates of theft and stealing plummeted to nothing. There were stories told of judges who had no dockets on, their, on the caseload in, in their uh, docket at all. Uh, the bars emptied. The money would go to their families and to the church. One particular group that was significantly impacted was the largest industry in Wales at the time was coal mining and reports of the coal mine workers' productivity going up while they would have hour-long prayer meetings underground. Perhaps the only group that was negatively affected were the mules because they could no longer understand the commands of the coal miners since they stopped swearing. This is an extraordinary moment of worship and you are there. In 1970, Behind the Iron Curtain in Romania, there was a pastor named Joseph's son. Joseph was a Baptist pastor who would not stop preaching, and so to shut him up, they threw him in jail. Day after day, they interrogated him. Day after day, wearing him down, he finally wrote a letter to his wife saying, I'm wearing down, I'm hurting, I don't know how much longer I can take this. In fact, he even confided in her that he's thinking of just giving up on the whole thing just so that he could get out. He made a a big mistake there, writing to his wife, because she wrote back, didn't you say you would die for Christ? Now do it. (laughs) Joseph, I watched you these days. God brings you to a place where you are really convinced that it's all over. And you have nothing left but to say, here I am. Do whatever you want. Now I'm ready to die. Then he has done the work in you. When that work is done, all of a sudden there is a solution to the problem. And you go free because the battle that God had was the battle in you. And they were only instruments to bring you to where you are completely broken. Not long after this correspondence, Joseph was released And for four years before they threw him in jail again, he was able to preach and 850 Romanians came to know Jesus Christ. This is an extraordinary moment of worship and you are there. Welcome to this preaching series on worship that we're doing at Waterstone. We began two weeks ago by seeing the worship that is going on in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. Now, as we speak and how it's still influencing us. Every time we gather, we understand we're wired for worship, wired to proclaim greatness, and it's happening before the throne of heaven now, and it's filtering down into our worship now. Great is the Lord, worthy is the Lamb. Last week, Danielle led us in preaching through Acts chapter two, when the church was birthed, And the Holy Spirit came and indwells the church and lives in every believer. And we're still living out the way the Holy Spirit has designed worship, namely to preach the apostles' doctrine, to pray, to fellowship, and to remember the Lord by the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. We are still following the Holy Spirit's leading in our worship. Today, we wanna take one more step back further in history and look, as Ginny read, at this great, Extraordinary moment of worship and you were there in Nehemiah 8. And we're going to in a moment, I'm gonna tell the story and then I wanna go back and pull out three symptoms of extraordinary worship. But I need to confess something. I need to tell you this. I'm hesitant, hesitant to preach sermons like this. This could be called a sermon that's about revival. And I'm always reluctant to even use the word revival and especially to preach on it. I'll tell you why when God visits a group or a church with this thing called revival, it's God's doing. God decides. He decides when, where, how, how long. It's his work. In other words, we can't go out there in the west lot, set up our tent and say, be here tomorrow, there's gonna be a revival. Can't do it. Can't manipulate God, can't box him in, can't boss him around. Revival is a work of the Holy Spirit in the sovereignty of God. So what you won't hear me saying today is if we just do these three things from Nehemiah 8, we're gonna have revival. That's not it. That's not it. I deny that quote. What I do want us to wrestle with is that as you study the history of revivals, what you see is that there is one common thread to every known revival. Do you know what it is? Prevailing prayer. Every time there's been a revival, it has usually come to places where there's been sometimes just a handful of people on their knees saying, God, would you come? God, would you come to Waterstone? Would you just revive us and awaken us and cause us to see your greatness again? It's usually a handful of people with huge spiritual appetite that kind of put down the targets where God seems to show up. It can't be predicted, it can't be demanded, but it's a common thread. And so what I am asking you this morning is that as we go through Nehemiah 8 and we talk about these three symptoms of extraordinary worship, I want you to wrestle with this. How much appetite for God do you? Appetite is usually expressed by Christians in prayer. Can I be blunt with you? Here it is. I'm coming right at you. How much God do you want? How much? All right, Nehemiah 8. It's an interesting story. It began in 539 BC when the Babylonian Empire fell overnight. And a a, a new king, as Jeremiah the prophet predicted, would come, his name was Cyrus the Great. And Israel at the time, because of their disobedience, they'd been in exile under the, the iron thumb of Babylon for 70 years. Jeremiah predicted 70 years. At the end of it, Cyrus shows favor to Israel and allows them to go back and resettle in their homeland in the Middle East. When they get back, as you can imagine, after 70 years of neglect, the infrastructure is crumbled. The, the, the economy's in shambles. There's no religious practices anywhere. So uh, God calls a man up. His name is Zerubbabel. He was a direct descendant of King David and an awesome politician. He recruits a group of people to go out with him and two prophets that are in the Old Testament, uh, Zechariah and Haggai. And they go, and amazingly, from 539 to 515, they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. An amazing one. But within decades, the work's still not done. The the people of Israel are again intermarrying with pagan uh, spouses and being called off to their gods. And and again, they're captured by their culture. And God sends the second wave led by a priest named Ezra in 459 BC. And he goes and begins to establish kind of a spiritual awakening. And the people start turning back to God. But they're still struggling until 444 BC. When this lay person named Nehemiah, he was the head of the secret service for King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. He was called the cupbearer, but that merely meant he drank the wine before the king did. So if it was gonna kill anyone, it would kill him, secret service. And, And he had such favor with King Artaxerxes that Artaxerxes says, you can go, Nehemiah had a great burden to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. So Artaxerxes says, go. And not only do I give you paid leave for two months, I'll supply everything you need. One of the great miracles of the Old Testament is that Nehemiah and Ezra and this workforce rebuild the entire wall about 60 miles around Jerusalem in two months. No orange vests and standing on shovels. I mean, they went after it. And they do it. And when in the ancient world, a, a city had their wall, it meant that they had their security. Their government agencies were in place. People were being cared for and administrated well. Things were working. The community was thriving. And that brings us right to Nehemiah 8. When the people, having had all the things on paper you'd think they'd need to be a thriving, growing community, they want more. And they gather at the Watergate. Now, first of all, don't, I find it's interesting that they want more. I mean, we know that, Right we kind of operate that way. We think to ourselves, well, if I just have the right spouse, the right house, the right kids, the right friends, the right car, the right hobbies, you know, whatever it is, we make our lists. We think that will bring us happiness. We'll have it. And then Bono comes on the radio. And here we go again. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And you think, That was the expression of the people. And so they call Ezra, their pastor. And they say, Ezra, read to us from the book, the Torah. We need to hear God's voice. I'm telling you, you can get everything you want in life. And in this country, you most likely will. But if you don't hear the voice of God, you're still going to be hungry. I'm telling you. So they meet at the water gate, which is interesting because in the ancient times in Israel, if the meeting of this proportions would have been held in the temple normally, but it wasn't because only the men could go into the main part of the temple. They wanted women and children. They wanted the whole group, the nation to be there. It's a large group that gathers at the water gate by the Gihon spring, the main water supply that comes into Jerusalem. They asked for Nehemiah, they built him a platform like this so he could stand and talk to the people. Levites, by the way, I apologize to my mother in law for having to read all those names. That was not intentional. For five hours, they preach a message. Did you hear me? A five hour long sermon, translating from Hebrew to Aramaic, explaining the text. This is what it means, and this is what it means for us. And the people are standing. The whole time. Wow. Extraordinary moment of worship. They come back the next day for more. They want to reenact the festival of booths. We'll talk more on that when we get there. But that's the story. That's where we enter. You are there. So I want to go back through and make pass over again and talk about the three symptoms of extraordinary worship and again I want you to be wrestling with how much God you want I want you to be asking how much appetite do I have for these things that's what I want you to wrestle with the first appetite for extraordinary worship is that God is being proclaimed as great they're reading through the Torah on the text and uh, Ezra stops and he says the Lord the great God And then all the people, they raise their hands, which is an expression of the heart, like you're raising for your dad. You have my heart. And then they say, amen, amen, which means I agree, yes. God is the center and God is great. So they respond mentally, yes, and they respond emotionally. I'm here, I'm yours. That Hebrew phrase God is great is an interesting phrase. It's one of the few times it's used in the scripture. It's in Hebrew, it's gadolim Elohim. You've probably heard of Elohim. That's the name for God. Gadolim comes from the Hebrew word for great gadol. And the im is like putting in our language, EST on the end of a word, loud, loudest, large, largest, strong, strongest, great, greatest. God is the greatest. They are proclaiming that he has the central place in my life. He is the greatest in my life. Amen, amen. That's the response. I wanted to reenact that this morning. So if we could get the readers moving, four at each mic. We want to proclaim how great the Lord is. We want to put the gadolim in this worship service. We want to take a moment and just reflect on the greatness of God. Please, people, come. Four at each mic. Don't be shy. All right, thank you. I will read the first one. I would just ask this of the readers. Don't read anything in parentheses. That's just there for references. You can skip anything in parentheses, but read the rest. Um, When we get to the one with holiness, that's a two-slider, and the one with love is a two-slider, which is the last one. Let us proclaim. Oh, and the rest of us, to reenact this extraordinary moment of worship, after each person reads, I would ask you, if you're comfortable doing this, I hope you are, to raise your hands and say, amen, amen, out loud, as we all together proclaim the greatness of the Lord. Amen, amen. I'll go first, and then we'll have Dave go next, and we'll alternate, okay. God is spirit. God is not composed of matter, nor is he contained or limited by space or in need of space to exist. God is immense and infinite. God's breath is what keeps us alive. God as spirit is the source of all life, the living one. God's self-given name is I am. Amen. Amen.
1: God is eternal. God is before and outside of time and is wholly independent of it. Time began in him and will end in him. God is present in all time and therefore all time is present to God. He is timeless and he lives in one indivisible present. We are derived, dependent, finite, and fragile. God is eternal, self-existent, and self-sustaining. God does not have it in him to go out of existence. He is not marked by personal disintegration as we are.
2: Amen. God is omnipresent. God is present everywhere in his fullness continually. There is no present moment or place into which his being has not pervaded. Thus, God is able to give his entire attention to billions of individuals at the same time. He upholds everything in his being so that he has everything everywhere, always before his mind in its own revelation to its all-inclusive plan and purpose for every item and person in his world. God is with us, is a constant theme of the Bible. We may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks
0: everywhere
2: incognito.
0: Amen. Amen.
2: God is an omnipotent. God is powerful to do everything that in his wisdom and holiness he wills to do. God overcomes every evil for the sake of the good and replaces the old order with the new. He is the ultimate and we are derivative. He steers the universe to the goal and history to the meaning endless love between God and his redeemed in a renewed world. Christ is risen.
3: Amen. Amen, amen.
0: God is omniscient. God has known everything about everything and everybody from eternity. The divine mind perceives the entire temporal sequence, all matter, all spirit, all relationships, all events. Simultaneously in one cognition his knowledge is immediately and directly before his mind No one or
3: nothing is out of God's view Amen, amen God is immutable. God is totally consistent with himself God has never had to change in any smallest measure Before he is perfect, he cannot change either for the better or for the worse. He cannot do either. For being perfect, he cannot become more perfect. And if he were to become less perfect, he would be less than God. Amen. Amen.
0: This is a two-slider. Maureen. Good, there's two of us.
4: (laughs) God is holy. The word means to be set apart or separated. God is different from us. He is holy other. Holiness is everything about God that sets him apart from his creation and makes him an object of awe, adoration, and trauma. None of his attributes can be understood by comparison to his creatures. Everything else belongs to a category. Hank is a human, Fido is a dog, Oak, a tree, Earth, a planet the Milky Way one of a billion galaxies, Gabriel an angel, Satan a demon, but only God is God. He is a category unto Himself. At the core of holiness is purity. God does not, cannot tolerate sin. Only fire can give even a remote conception of His holiness. In fire He appeared at the burning bush. In the pillar of fire, he dwelt through the wilderness journey. The fire that glowed between the wings of the cherubim in the holy place was called the Shekinah, the presence. Through the years of Israel's glory, and when the old had given place to the new, he came at Pentecost as a fiery flame and rested upon each disciple. God is a consuming fire. Amen. Amen. God is sovereign. He created everything in the universe. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. He controls every nation and every person. He changes times and governments and cultures. God reigns. He has the right to do what he wants, and he answers to no one. The destiny of every person hangs on God. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times and what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please.
0: Amen. Amen. Two slider, Kurt.
1: Trauma, fear, turns to wisdom, turns to worship. Trust when you see God's great forgiveness, mercy love for us. Because of God's eternal plan, his son Jesus came down, humbled himself by dying on a cross to redeem his enemies from the slavery to sin and from separation by death. In our relationship with God, he always says, I love you first. Some of us think we do not matter. We wonder if anyone in the world cares about our life. Some of us come from parents who do not treat it treat you like we mattered, and there are wounds. Some of us have been rejected by loved ones, parents divorced, or spouses left. Some of us have totally wrecked our life by poor choices. The scandal of the room is not what we have done. The scandal is Jesus bringing the extravagant love of the Father free and fierce and wide in mercy some of us need to come home
0: it's this kind of reflection and praise of the greatness the gedolim of god that is healing you remember the story of job how he lost everything his family his job his health lost it all his friends came and cried with him, which was a good start, and then opened their mouth and ruined everything. All the talking went on and on and on until finally says, is everyone done? Let me speak. Job. Job, where were you when I created the mountain goats high on the 14ers and helped them drop their babies on the rocks? Where were you When I put all the snow in the storage closet and bring it out from time to time? Where were you when I made the whales to swim in the depths of the earth and I see them sneeze? Where were you when I made the ostriches with wings but made them run and made hawks with wings and made them fly? On and on and on. And on God goes. All of it essentially saying, Job, how great do you perceive I am? Finally, Job, after hearing God's questions, he does this spiritual discipline. We call it to recollect. He covers his mouth and he recollected God. And when we, in our lives, are always perceiving God as greater and greatest, what that does is bring perspective to our problems and our smallness. Now, don't mishear me. It says in the text clearly that Job complained bitterly, but he never sinned with his words. God invites us to complain and to to feel what we're feeling and to express our hurt. But we do that at the same time we are gripping on to the perception of the greatness of God. Because the greater God is becoming in our lives, the more perspectives our problems, hard as they are, will take on. I remember knowing a woman a few years ago who was carrying around just a boatload of shame and guilt. She was probably in her 40s, but... During her high school years, she had had a a child out of wedlock, never intended to marry the guy, gave the child up for adoption. She grew up in a pretty strict Christian environment. Of course, her parents were shattered. The church had a hard time with it, didn't handle it all that well, left a lot of wounds. But over time, her parents had forgiven her, tried to mend the relationship. The church had moved. I mean, she was the only one carrying around this deep shame 20 years after it happened. She went to talk to her pastor. Pastor just wisely listened. She poured it all out, carrying around this shame. I'm paraphrasing for what he said, but he said it in a much kinder and gentler way. But he essentially said, Look, miss, on the throne of your heart, what you are carrying around is your parents. You are still living under their perception of who you should be and what you should do. And the image you have for yourself is their image. I boldly say to you, you need to demote your parents from the throne of your heart and put God on the throne of your heart. And do you know how good and great God is? He remembers your sin no more. He has the divine power of forgetfulness when it comes to sin. You are the only one carrying this around. The greater God is becoming in our lives, the more our problems fall into their proper perspective. The greatness of God is the first extraordinary feature of worship. The second is a deep hunger for God's word, hunger for the word. Did I mention earlier that they stood for five hours during a five-hour sermon? Did I have to mention that? Can you imagine? Where did that come from, to stand for five hours and listen to a sermon? I would suggest it comes from this. Deep hunger for God's word comes when we reframe the Bible. The Bible is not just a religious text. It's not just a book. It's not just a chore of duties. The Bible is a voice. It is your father in heaven talking to you. Now, I know there's hard parts of the Bible, parts that are hard to understand, parts that are monotonous, but all of the Bible is God's voice to you. It is the father talking to you. When he says do, he means do help yourself. And when he says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. It's the Father's voice. I'm asking all of you as you approach the Bible to reframe it. It's not just a book. It is a voice. It is the Father's voice. The whole story of the Bible is God's plan to send his own son to live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died so that we can have relationship with his Father. That's why Jesus came. John 1, to as many as receive Jesus, to them God gives the power to become the children of God. The greatest thing we could say about another person is that they are a child of God. They have access to the Father. Guidance, freedom, forgiveness, joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. All of that comes from being a child of the Father who loves us, who frees us who forgives us. Did you read about Jenny Simpson, the first American woman to medal in the 1500 meter? There was a great piece about her life in the Denver Post last week. It talked about her growing up in a home with two college professors, very academic oriented uh, environment. And she grew up with this, not, never stated, her parents seemed kind and gentle, but this pressure of being an academic scholar and needing to study and the way she was gonna get to college was through her brains. And so study, study, study. The problem is Jenny was good at running and actually loved to do it. So she had this tension in her about running. She began to win races, began to get very good, but knew she felt she needed to do it through academics. Finally, finally her father comes into her room one night before she goes to sleep and says, Jenny, if you love running and you want to go to a school to help you run, then you go to that college. Happened to be CU, boom. It's the voice of the Father that gives us freedom, forgiveness, direction, purpose, joy, and hope. Zephaniah 3.17 says that the Father sings over us. My boys are now 25 and 22. Do you want to know what I miss?
3: I miss tucking them in at night. I miss singing over them. Shady green pastures so rich and so sweet, God leads his dear children along. Where the water's cool flow bathes the weary one's feet, God leads his dear children along. Some through the water, some through the flood. Some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. The greatness of God is extraordinary worship, a deep hunger for his word, the Father singing over us. And lastly, radical obedience
0: is extraordinary worship. It's the result, right? They come back the next day after the five-hour sermon. (laughs) They come back for more. And they want to reenact the Festival of the Booths. That was a, a Jewish holiday. It would become Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, where they would go out and put a tent in their front yard or on their roof. And they would pretend they were living in the wilderness again. From, from the Exodus to the promised land when God kept them alive in the desert for 40 years, God's goodness, God's power, they would go live in a tent to remember that day. Can you imagine though what the neighbors would have thought? I mean, they're living in a pagan environment here. You grown men, you're gathering sticks for what? To build a stick fort? What's that about? They were doing extreme neighboring setting up a tent in their front yard, inviting their neighbors over to experience the goodness and the greatness of God. A few years ago, I was doing a wedding ceremony and the bride and groom wanted to exchange purity rings as part of the ceremony. Perhaps some of you may have heard of this tradition. It's a great thing to talk about with your kids where they they had each been given rings as young teenagers and they had made a pledge to keep their virginity and on the day of their wedding, they would give those rings to each other, which would symbolize giving their virginity to one another. Can you imagine what a gift that would be and how much how much honey would be in the honeymoon? After the ceremony, one of the groomsmen pulls me aside. Larry,
3: what'd you think of that?
0: Wow, it's powerful, right? I mean, to give that as a gift to your, Husband or wife on your wedding day, oh my goodness, he says yeah i 'm not so sure He said first of all it 's too late for me, which later on, I did correct him. it is never too too late to reclaim your celibacy and to reclaim your virginity and give it to someone, never too late, but he said, uh, you know I, I lost him. as a pastor, you get used to those kinds of confessions, right? People are always telling me about their sex lives, but He says, I don't know. I I, I don't know if if I could do that. I haven't done that. And, And I don't know if I believe it's true. But, and here's my point. Sorry, wandered away there. Here's my point. He said, they've got my attention. Radical obedience is what make revivals evangelistic. Radical obedience captivates a culture by serious commitment, and they can't figure it out, and might be interested in knowing more. All right, there it is. How much God do you want? What's your spiritual appetite? The greatness of God as the center of your life. A hunger for the word to hear the Father's voice when you read the Bible, and radical obedience as a result to wake up the culture. How much God do you want? It was an extraordinary moment of worship. And you are there. 400 years after Ezra stood on that platform, another man stood at the same place, at the water gate by the spring of Gihon. And he said this, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. I will give you the living water. And if you drink of this water, you will never be thirsty again. Jesus stood at the spring of Gihon and made that promise to you and I. How much God do you want? Jesus says, if you drink of me, you will never be thirsty again. And so we need an invitation. And our invitation now is given to us that we're gonna sing it. But first an invitation by a 25-year-old evangelist. His name was George Whitfield. Let me draw out my soul And heart to you, my dear friends, my dear guilty friends, poor bleeding souls who must shortly take your last farewell and fly into endless eternity. Methinks the very sight is awful. I could almost weep over you, as our Lord did over Jerusalem, to think in how short a time every soul of you must die. Some of you to go to heaven, and others to go to the devil forevermore. Oh, my dear friends, These are matters of eternal moment. I did not come to tickle your ears. If I had a mind to do so, I would play the orator. No, but I came, if God should be pleased, to touch your hearts. What shall I say to you? Open the door of your heart that the King of glory, the blessed Jesus, may come in and erect his kingdom in your soul. Make room for Christ. The Lord Jesus desires to sup with you tonight. Christ is willing to come into any of your hearts that will be pleased to open. Now let's stand and
3: let's sing our hearts to the Father.